From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. In my last episode, I told you about the brutal murder of Shirley Coons in Fairbanks, Alaska. If you haven't yet listened to that episode, I suggest you do so before you listen to this one. The two episodes are connected, and this is part two. In the previous episode, I said that Christopher Marcy received a 139-year sentence and is incarcerated at Alaska's only maximum security prison, the Spring Creek Correctional Center in Seward, Alaska. In 1994, Christopher Marcy and his friend Brian Parati managed the unthinkable when they escaped from Spring Creek. When Marcy and Parati first escaped, the police warned the public to be on the lookout for the pair. They considered both inmates dangerous, but they believed Brian Parati was the most violent of the two. Since Christopher Marcy was in prison for stabbing a grandmother 26 times and then raping her as she lay dying, I couldn't imagine a more violent predator and was curious to learn the details of Brian Parati's young life and the crime that sent him to prison for 99 years. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. Brian Parati grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska. He was an athlete at Lathrop High School, and he was a popular student and a smart kid. It is both disturbing and sad to learn how he threw away his life and ended the life of another young man. But those close to Brian knew he was different. They understood something was wrong with Brian. When researching Brian Parati, I was lucky to find an article online by Elizabeth Fairfield Stokes. Miss Stokes was friends with both Brian Parati and Johnny Jackson, the young man Parati murdered. She wrote a beautiful piece titled Letters to Prison about the crime and how it affected her life. Her article added the depth I need to talk about Brian and his crime. Elizabeth Stokes' father was an Episcopalian priest at St. Stephen's Church in Fairbanks, and Brian Parati's family attended the church. Elizabeth was a year older than Brian, but the two often served as acolytes, and they became casual friends. At school, Brian liked the attention of the other students. He was the class clown and a wrestler on the high school team. He had many friends, and to most, he seemed happy and well-adjusted. When he was a sophomore, Brian began dating a girl, and just like with everything else he did, his relationship with his girlfriend seemed over the top. 
He held her hand and kissed her as they cuddled in the school halls, and he had flowers and stuffed animals delivered to her at the school. Brian could not stay away from his new girlfriend, and he often took his parents' car after they fell asleep and drove to her house. His parents scolded him for taking their car and told him not to do it again. But he didn't listen to them. His father finally threatened to call the police and report his car stolen if Brian took it again without their permission. When Brian disobeyed, his father followed through and called the police. Brian's parents were beside themselves and did not know how to control their son. Brian seemed headstrong to the point of self-destruction. Still, Brian continued to do well at school, and no one but his family and a few of their friends seemed to know he was getting in trouble at home. Before she dated Brian, Brian's girlfriend briefly dated Johnny Jackson, 18. In the spring of 1988, a school official overheard Brian's girlfriend tell another friend that Johnny had raped her shortly before she began seeing Brian. The school official reported what she'd heard, and the police questioned the girl about the incident. The girl declined to press charges, and when the police talked to Johnny, he adamantly denied any wrongdoing. Johnny said he did not assault the girl, and lacking any evidence, the police declined to move forward with the case. Most of the students at Lathrop High School did not believe Johnny had raped Brian's girlfriend. Johnny was kind and goofy. He had already graduated from high school and worked as a cook at Los Amigos Restaurant in Fairbanks. Even Brian doubted that Johnny had raped his girlfriend, and he told his family he didn't know what had happened because his girlfriend refused to talk about the incident. Brian's psychological makeup, though, did not allow him to ignore what had happened between his girlfriend and Johnny Jackson. Brian became obsessed with the situation and consumed with not only defending his girlfriend's honor, but also determined to protect what he believed was his. The following is an excerpt from a May 11, 1988 letter from Brian to his girlfriend. This may sound egotistical and possessive, but he took something that was mine. It was and is a part of me. It was, is, like he did it to me, even though I don't know what happened or exactly how much he hurt you. But he stole something that is very precious to me, something that cannot be returned. I want it back, and by doing what I'm going to do, I will gain something that is equally precious to him. Most who read this letter interpreted it to mean that Johnny and Brian's girlfriend had sex and Brian was jealous. As the days and weeks unfolded, Brian's obsession with Johnny Jackson did not diminish. Instead, Brian's hatred grew, and he said Johnny deserved to die. Brian stalked Johnny for months and told anyone who would listen that he intended to kill Johnny Jackson. Brian threatened Jackson to his face, but Johnny shrugged off Brian's comments, and unfortunately for Johnny, Brian's and Johnny's friends and acquaintances also did not take Brian's threats seriously. They believed Brian was looking for attention, 
and would never do anything more than talk. On January 4, 1989, 16-year-old Brian Parati finally decided to act on his anger. He walked into Los Amigos restaurant where Johnny Jackson was working in the kitchen and kidnapped Johnny at gunpoint. No one witnessed the abduction. Johnny simply vanished into thin air, and the police declared him missing. Brian couldn't keep his mouth shut and told several friends that he'd kidnapped and murdered Johnny Jackson. He said he'd forced Jackson into his truck and drove the three miles to the Tanana River. Brian held Johnny hostage for an hour and a half in his truck and then walked him across the icy river to an island 100 yards from shore. Brian shot Johnny twice in the head, execution style. He then stripped off Johnny's clothes, poured gasoline on Johnny's body, and attempted to burn the corpse. When the body would not burn, Brian hid it under an embankment. Frozen dirt and snow concealed the body. Parati took an ATM card from Jackson's pocket and withdrew $80 from Jackson's bank account. Brian told at least one friend that he didn't regret killing Johnny Jackson. He said when he saw the look on Johnny's face after he fired the first shot, he had never been so happy in his life. At the same time, though, he said he felt sick to his stomach. Fairbanks police found Jackson's body four days after the murder, on January 8, 1989. Police obtained a warrant for Parati's home, where they discovered the 22 caliber pistol used to shoot Jackson. The police then monitored a phone call between Parati and a friend. Brian described the murder in detail to his friend and promised he would take his friend out to where he'd stashed Johnny's body and they'd have a party. Not long after the phone conversation, the friend called Brian and asked him to meet him at his father's car dealership. When Johnny arrived, police, who were hiding behind the desks in the dealership, jumped to their feet, guns pointed at Parati, and yelled, Freeze! The state of Alaska immediately secured an order to waive juvenile jurisdiction and proceeded to prosecute Brian Parati as an adult. Parati pleaded no contest to a single count of first-degree murder in return for the state's promise to dismiss charges of kidnapping, first-degree robbery, and tampering with physical evidence. While incarcerated at the Fairbanks Correctional Center, where Parati was awaiting sentencing for his murder conviction, Brian climbed onto the center's roof jumped a guard, and wrestled the guard for his rifle while smashing the guard in the face. Parati then grabbed a handgun from the guard's belt, but Brian surrendered when he realized there were no bullets in the gun. When it came time to sentence Brian Parati, the judge considered the manner in which Brian had committed the murder, the circumstances leading to the murder, Parati's conduct and lack of remorse after the killing, and Parati's attempted prison escape. Despite his age, the judge found Brian Parati to be the worst type of offender. 
He doubted Parati could be rehabilitated and judged him a danger to society. The judge sentenced Brian Parati to 99 years in prison. Brian Parati was sent to do his time at Spring Creek Correctional Center, and on March 15, 1994, 21-year-old Brian Parati and 28-year-old Christopher Marcy, the two inmates from Fairbanks, became the first, and until the present time anyway, the only inmates to escape from Spring Creek. Let me take a short break. As many of you know, I'm an author. In addition to true crime, I write Alaska wilderness mysteries. A few main characters appear in my books, but the central character is Jane Marcus. Jane has her Ph.D. in fishery biology. In my first novel, Big Game, Jane is taking care of her sick mother in Kansas. When she goes for a drive in the country one day, she sees a car veer off the road into a field. The driver is badly injured, and he whispers an urgent message to Jane. The message does not make sense to her, but after the man dies, she feels duty-bound to try to decipher what he was attempting to tell her. Her detective work takes her to a hunting camp on the Alaska Peninsula, but her float plane trip to the peninsula begins in Kodiak. Jane falls in love with Kodiak Island for the short time she is there, and the next year when a job becomes available at the Marine Center in Kodiak, Jane jumps at the opportunity. The rest of my novels, beginning with Murder Over Kodiak, take place on Kodiak Island. In Murder Over Kodiak, I introduce FBI Special Agent Nick Morgan, and he and Jane have an on-again, off-again relationship. Alaska State Trooper Sergeant Dan Patterson enters in Book 3, The Fisherman's Daughter. And in Book 5, Massacre at Bear Creek Lodge, Patterson takes center stage. In my next novel, I plan to return to Jane as the central character. And I can't wait to once again watch her curiosity get her into trouble. Each of my novels is a standalone story, and you can read them in any order. I develop most of my storylines from the true crimes that have shaped Alaska's history. Friends Marcy and Parati planned the prison break together. The pair fled the prison between 9.30 p.m. and 11.20 p.m. by cutting holes in two of the three fences surrounding the Institute and climbing over the third fence. Water surrounds the prison to the south and west, and mountains and glaciers abut it to the east. Within minutes after the prison officials contacted the Seward police about the escape, the police set up a roadblock on the Seward Highway, checking drivers' IDs and inspecting vehicles for the missing prisoners. Approximately 40 Alaska State Troopers, Seward Police, and Corrections Officers searched for the prisoners. Authorities warned the residents of Seward to be on the lookout for the two men. They also warned the Fairbanks lawyers, judges, and witnesses involved in the men's trials to take special precautions. 
The troopers were worried the pair would return to Fairbanks and exact retribution against anyone who had participated in putting them in prison. Authorities would soon discover how Marcy and Parati escaped from a maximum security prison. The pair somehow learned that the electronic system used to monitor the prison's wire fences was not working correctly, and they identified the weak spots in the apparatus. Marcy stole wire-cutting pliers from the prison's maintenance shop, where he worked, and he and Parati disguised themselves with white sheets while they cut through the innermost perimeter fence. Only one guard manned the guard tower, but he should have seen the prisoners cut through this fence. Once they slipped through the inner fence, they moved to a blind spot directly below the tower and under a bridge. The pair knew the electronic sensors in this area were malfunctioning, and they could cut a hole in the second fence without being observed. The outer fence was constructed of heavier gauge wire, so instead of cutting it, Marcy and Parati climbed over it. A guard assigned to continually circle the outer perimeter of the prison in a truck did not see the prisoners leave the grounds. A towered relief guard discovered the escape after the shift change, when he saw footprints between the inner and second fences. He called a ground crew to investigate, and they soon found the holes in the fences. Guards immediately locked down the prison and checked each cell. Guards soon discovered that both Parati and Marcy had stuffed clothing and other items under their covers to make it appear as if they were asleep in bed. The previous night, when the guards did the final prisoner count for the day, they saw the bulging blankets and assumed both Marcy and Parati were asleep. While Marcy and Parati carefully planned a daring escape, they apparently had no idea where they would go once they left the prison grounds. They broke into a house, stole camping gear, and somehow acquired alcohol. They then climbed the side of Mount Marathon near Seward, pitched a tent, and got drunk. Less than 24 hours after they escaped, the Trooper's Special Emergency Response Team captured Christopher Marcy and Brian Parati. Troopers in a helicopter spotted the prisoners' tent on Mount Marathon, and they swarmed the area with helicopters. Marcy and Parati surrendered without a fight. The pair were drunk at the time of their capture. The prison escape angered the residents of Seward and caused prison officials to take a hard look at their procedures. They made several changes in response to the escape and asked the state for more money to repair the troublesome electronic sensors on the fences. Some of the changes implemented at the prison included restricting access to tools by inmates, two guards would independently do the prisoner counts, and during the bedtime count, the guards would ask the inmates to sit or stand to assure their presence. A guard would man a new watch post to observe the area that can't be seen from the watch tower. Guards would increase perimeter patrols. Marcy and Parati were convicted of second-degree escape and burglary for breaking out of the Spring Creek Correctional Center. 
The years added to their sentences made little difference, though, since they were both already serving life in prison. After their return to Spring Creek, the guards placed them in solitary confinement. The families of the victims of Coons and Marcy, as well as the judges, lawyers, witnesses, and jurors from their trials, all breathed a sigh of relief to know the two violent prisoners were back in prison. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about the Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Thank you.